And if you would, open your Bibles again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 50. You know, the words that are recorded in this book really were recorded 700 years uh, before they were actually fulfilled with the coming uh, and the birth of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But even though they were written long before they were ultimately fulfilled, uh, what we find is that the words that are prophesied here are incredibly, um, are incredibly accurate when we begin to unpack them and see how they measure up to their fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, what we find here is this, is that even though Isaiah didn't specifically use the name Jesus uh, while writing this particular text, instead he used the word um, uh, servant to describe him, we see that his description is extremely accurate of the person of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of his writing this book of Isaiah is to let God's people know that hope was going to come into a hopeless world. And so what we find is that the last part, the very last section in the book of Isaiah, and there's three major sections that we covered last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago in the introduction, that what we find is um, in the very last section, there are passages of, of Scripture which we refer to as servant songs, which it talks about the servant that was to come. And in each one of these, what it does is it demonstrates how this servant was going to go about bringing hope into a hopeless world. For example, let me just give you an example. For last week, Isaiah chapter 42, we studied that. And there we saw that this servant was going to be a servant of justice. And we talked about in the beginning of the service that this world needs justice because it really is an unjust world in which we live. It seems like those who are innocent seem to be condemned and those who need to be condemned seem to be set free. Those who are op openly and rebelliously uh, living towards God don't seem to really, uh, really suffer any kind of immediate consequence. And instead, many of them seem to be thriving in their disobedience to God. So the promise and the hope that Isaiah gave us last week is that, you know what? The servant that comes will be a servant of justice. And he's going to make everything that is wrong with this world right. Everything that is upside down, he's going to make right side up. And that was his promise of hope to the people. Now this week, we see something different. We see that the servant of justice is also going to be a servant of obedience. And what he's going to do is he is going to come and he is going to bring perfect obedience and submission to the creator God in a perfectly disobedient world. This is the role of this particular servant. And in that, he brings hope to us, his people. And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to take the time that we have remaining this morning. And what I want to do is I want to just demonstrate or just draw your attention to three truths concerning this perfect obedience of this servant that was to come. And the first thing I want you to see in the text of Scripture in verse 4 is this. I want you to see the servant's, the servant's practice. The servant's practice. Now, read along with me in verse 4, if you will. The Bible says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So the person speaking here, who we recognize as being Christ, the servant, he identifies himself as being one who was given, he describes himself as one who was given a tongue. That means he was given a unique ability to be able to speak by God himself. And the Bible says that when he speaks, he speaks as those who are taught. Now, what do we call a person who is taught by another? We refer to them as a student 
or as a disciple. So here Jesus is, is really referring to himself as not just a disciple, but the disciple of God is what the word of God lays out in front of us. And so as a disciple of God, this one that was to come, Jesus who was to come, was to be given by God himself an unbelievable, unimaginable way about him in the way that he would speak that would be unlike anyone who would ever come before him and anyone who would ultimately come after him. And when we look at the fulfillment of this in the New Testament, we see that this is extremely evident through the ministry of Christ. For example, we see it fulfilled in John chapter 4 when Jesus came and he began to talk with a woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. When he finishes speaking to her, she leaves. She goes back to her hometown and she says to her friends and her family, she says, come and see the man who told me all that I had ever did, all that I ever did. Nobody had ever been able to speak to her like this. We see the fulfillment again in Luke chapter 24 and verse 32. There, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he appears to, appears to some of his disciples. And as he begins to talk, he begins to preach from the scriptures to them. And then all of a sudden, he just disappears. And then later on, as they are reflecting, they say to one another, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? Then, of course, we see it again in John chapter 7 in verses 45 through 46. We see it with a group of officers that were sent by the religious leaders to go and arrest Jesus. And when they came back, there was no Jesus. They didn't bring Jesus back with them. They hadn't arrested him. And the scriptures say this. It says that the officers then came to the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. So they were so wrapped up, so captivated with the way that this man spoke that they kind of forgot to do what they were sent there to do. We see the same impact, of course, in a little bit different way on the religious leaders. And we see this fulfilled here in Luke chapter 14 and verses 3 through 6. You know that those leaders were always trying to fool Jesus, trying to catch him in some kind of awkward position that he would lose face in front of the people. And Jesus, the Bible says here, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying... Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They had brought a man and said, hey, look, this guy is sick. The, the law says that we should not heal on the sick. What should you do? Should we do it or not? And Jesus said, it says, but they remained silent after he asked this question. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And then notice this, it says, and they could not reply to these things. So when this one was to come, Jesus Christ was to come, he would have a powerful way of speaking in which his very words would transform and impact those that would hear his words. Now, even though he had the power within his own speech to convict and condemn, the Bible identifies here in verse 4 that his ultimate power was not demonstrated in his ability to convict and condemn, but rather his ability to speak encouragement to those who needed it. Look at the very next phrase in verse 4. The Bible says that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. The word sustain there means to uphold or to strengthen. To strengthen who? The strong, no, the weary, those, those that were weak, those that felt like giving up, those that felt like they couldn't move forward anymore. He says he came, he was given the power to be able to speak, and he would speak primarily, that power would be demonstrated primarily to speak a word that would encourage and uphold and strengthen all those who were weak 
and that we're really just falling apart at the seams. Now, we see this again in Jesus' ministry, don't we? We see this all of a sudden, one day, Jesus was standing and he was teaching and this woman was brought before him by a group of religious leaders and they threw this woman and they say, look, this woman had been caught in the very act of adultery. This is what he, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a one. And it just so happens they not only brought the lady, but they brought their stones. And so there they are. They said, what should we do? They were ready to go at it. And then all of a sudden, he, he, they said, what do you say? And he doesn't say anything at first. He just kneels down and begins to draw on the sand. And after drawing a little bit, they say, yeah, what do you say? Yeah, Jesus, what do you say? Right? They're trying to get the word. Finally, he stands up and he says, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Again, his powerful words does what? Really condemns them, sends them away. And then it's just Jesus and this lady who's been caught and guilty of adultery. And so you're wondering what's going to happen at this particular point. Is he going to condemn her as well? No, he sits and he bends down. He says, he says, who is it that condemns you? She looks around and she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does he do? He has the ability and the capability to condemn her, but she knew she was condemned. She knew she was weak. She knew that she was in trouble. And he sits there and encourages her to what? To go and live this godly life. That was the power that Jesus Christ had in his words to be able to come alongside of her. Now, what's interesting uh, to me is this, is that he comes and he can provide these particular words of encouragement, but he doesn't tell us what those specific words of encouragement were. And here's what I would just say to you. Looking at this, there are some here, and I know because I've met with many, some of you this last week and over the last couple of weeks, that, man, you find yourself weary this morning. You find yourself trying to follow God. You're trying to work with God. You're trying to follow along. You're trying to be obedient in everything you can. But the truth of the matter is, you likewise are really just about to be able to give up. And what I would say is some of you are feeling this morning, you, you may feel like you need this or you may feel like you need that. But what you really need is you need a word from Jesus today. You need a word right now. You know that perhaps you've been in sin or whatever. And the word that you need right now is you need an encouraging word for God to come and just say, you can make this. You can do this. You can keep being faithful. You can keep following me in obedience. Now, again, like I said just a moment ago, even though he says the words uphold and strengthen us, those who are weary, he doesn't give us the specific words. But what he does do is he demonstrates where he gets these words. How does he go about speaking these words? Where do they come from? And he shares it with us in the very next section. He says, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So what Christ says here, he says, look, my ability to speak really was based on my ability to hear. And God gave me, my teacher gave me the ability to be able to hear. Now, when he talks about hearing, he's not talking about the ear's just mechanical ability and capability to be able to just absorb and to interpret sound, all right? It's not just talking about the eardrum. What he's talking about is he's talking about the type of hearing and the way that the word of God defines hearing and how it always defines hearing. It never talks about just hearing different sounds and interpreting it. When it talks about hearing from God and hearing the word of God, it talks about the ability to internalize what's being said and then to be able to act obediently to it, to submit oneself to the word of God. And here the scripture says that this servant that would come would hear God's word and be able to speak God's word because he was able to internalize it and be obedient to it. The very next phrase, in verse five, it says, and the Lord God has opened my ear. 
given me the ability to obey, and he says, and I was not rebellious, and I turned not backwards. Now, the reason this would have been so important in context is because this was just the opposite of what God's people were doing. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah's time, in Isaiah chapter 48, notice this, in, in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 8, he speaks of God's people, the nation of Israel, and he says, you have never heard, Isaiah said, you have never known. He says, from of old, your ear has not been opened. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying, hey, you guys are just physically deaf. You haven't been able to hear the commandments of God. You haven't been able to hear Isaiah's preaching. No, they could hear Isaiah's preaching. They could hear the teaching of the priest. They could hear all of these things. The problem is that it never became their own. It was never internalized. They never followed and submitted in obedience to it. So he says, you guys are deaf. You don't hear the word of God. Yeah, you may understand it in your mind or have some kind of uh, 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 mental cortex kind of understanding of what's going on. He says, but you don't know it. You don't hear me. And so what the scriptures say is this. The scriptures say that the one that is going to come, he is going to come in the way that he goes about things. The practice of the servant is to hear God's word and to submit fully and completely to it. Now, folks, it's interesting is because he's able to do that, he's able to be able to speak words that radically transform people. You know, I have folks as a pastor, and this has been consistent as long as I've been in ministry. Folks will come all the time and they will say, hey, Brother Mike, can you come and talk with my husband? Or can you come and talk with my family member? Or can you come and talk uh, with this guy that I work with about Jesus and, and share with them and answer their questions? Can you just kind of come and do that? By the way, we pay you, so that's why you need to come and that's what we're paying you to do. Okay, And so oftentimes people say this. Now, let me say this, is that I understand that sometimes you're so emotionally attached to a particular individual, a family member, that sometimes, let's be honest, it's just hard to find the words to say because you're so burdened by sharing the truth of the gospel and you understand what it means and you're so broken, you have a hard time finding that word. But what I find is, even though sometimes that is the case, many times... People just can't share the truth of the gospel to other people or they, they have a hard time bringing it and they think to themselves, well, listen, uh, I just, I'm not a good speaker like you are. And I'm like, have you listened to me speak on Sunday morning? What, what are you talking about? And, and sometimes I challenge them and this is what I say. I say to them, look, man, you don't have a speech problem. You have a hearing problem. You don't have a speech problem. You have a hearing problem. And let me understand, let, let me get what this means. You, have, you always have something important to say, something powerful to say if you are powerfully listening to God and submitting to the word of God. You always have it. If you come into the house of God week in and week out and you listen, but you're only listening to be able to learn new things, you have nothing to say to a lost and dying world, at least nothing powerful and convincing. It's just like a preacher. I've heard so many preachers that had prepared and they got up and they spoke but by the time they got done, I was sitting there going, they said a lot, but they really never said anything. There's really no meat there. There's no substance there. And what I believe it oftentimes is, is because they just didn't hear from God. And what I tell the guys on staff and everything, look, if you will meet with God and you'll let God speak to you, you'll have plenty to say on Sunday morning and it will be powerful because it will be the word of God. You know, I've oftentimes said uh, this, the, the most dangerous place to be on Sunday morning is anywhere other than the house of God. Why is that? Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You and I have to be consistent in not only reading the word, but coming and sitting underneath the preaching of God's word, the clear teaching of God's word. 
And so if you cannot become transformed by the renewing of your mind through the preaching and the move of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're not consistently hearing the word of God, if you're just simply not hearing that, right? But here's something that I would say. I'd add to that this, this as well. Is it's not only dangerous not to be here, one of the most dangerous places is actually to be here each and every week. Because what happens, and I think that this is true for so many in our church, there is a sense of self-gratification when you leave here sitting there and going, we heard the word, we learned things that we had never learned, that was powerful, that was good, that was clear, I'm walking away. But here's the catch. So many walk out that place with more mental knowledge, but they're walking out of that place without any kind of decisive decision to submit themselves to the lordship of what's being said and allow that to work out in their life and be obedient to what is ultimately being preached. And the reason that that is so incredibly dangerous is because it leads you to be deceived. You walk around with a mind full of lofty thoughts, but it has not transformed your life. Therefore, you have nothing really of substance to say to a lost and dying world. Nothing that is impactful. Nothing that is life transforming to them. So what should we do? Well, in light of this servant, in the light of his practice of speaking, but his speaking truth and powerful words are based on what? His hearing and internalizing and submitting to the word of God. Our prayer, your prayer this morning should be this. Lord, morning by morning, give me the biblical ear to hear what it is you are saying and the wisdom and the power to apply it to my life each and every day. That should be our prayer this morning. So, first of all, we see in the text of Scripture, we see the servant's practice. The second thing that we see in the Scripture this morning is the servant's endurance. Now, notice, if you will, in verse 6. The Bible says, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. Now, what he's referring to here is he's talking about the extent to which he was willing to submit himself to the commands of God, to to the extent to which he was willing to be obedient. And did you notice in reading this verse, the immediate outcome, the immediate consequence of his obedience was not prosperity, but rather it was what? Suffering. And it was pain. Because of his obedience and entrusting God to do what he called him to do, it brought him pain and suffering into his life. We see it really manifested in two ways. We see a physical suffering, which was indicated in that first part of the verse of of his back being struck. We also see that there's an emotional suffering because of his obedience, which is defined uh, here by pulling out his beard during that day. If somebody wanted to really humiliate somebody, they'd pull their beard out in chunks. Not only would that be painful, but it was humiliating, all right? And then it also says here humiliation through disgrace and also being spit upon. So, So notice something. His obedience ultimately brought suffering. Now, I want you to draw your attention as well to the verbs here because they're very important. Notice the two verbs, I gave my back and I did not hide my face. Did you notice that? Those two verbs. So what this is telling us, he suffered for doing what is right, but he did it willfully. This wasn't something that he was forced to do. God didn't say, hey, this is what you're going to do and forced him to be able to suffer. He submitted himself knowing he was going to suffer. He went and he did it and he did it Willfully, You know what this teaches us? That for some people, there's something far more important to them, something that they desire far more than temporal comfort and convenience in their life. 
For Jesus, it was not about the here and now and just the comforts of life, but rather what was far more important than him was the submission to his heavenly Father. That's what he desired above all else. Even when it called for pain, his desire for to be obedient and submissive to God was even greater than his own temporal comfort at the time. And so what we find is, in, in, in the Word of God, we find that, that ultimately teaches us that even though Jesus Christ, even though it was, it was not um, something that was, um, excuse me, that even though this idea of suffering for righteousness' sake was not foreign to Christ, the unfortunate part is it is for many of us. It is for many of God's people. Let, let's just be honest today. We expect that when we do the right things, that things should go well with us, yes? Right? In fact, many of us, when we do the right thing, we expect that, God, that, that we are entitled for God to give us a painless, pain-free, suffering-free life. I mean, he owes it to us, right? If we're going to do what he tells us to do. We, we oftentimes even assume that we are immune to suffering if we do what is right. That's why we say things like this. How can everything be falling apart? I've done everything that God has called me to do, right? So we feel like we are to be saved from difficulties when we do what is right. Now, let me explain something. To a certain level, that's right, isn't it? To a certain level, that is true. When God says, do not, what is he saying? He's saying, do not hurt yourself. He's not trying to be a cosmic killjoy. Look, when he says, do not be drunk with wine, why is he saying that? So you don't have fun? No, so that you don't get your license taken away. So you don't kill somebody on the road. So that you don't lose your job. So that you don't look like a moron when you're drunk, okay? And throw up all over everybody. What he's doing is he is saying, no, don't hurt yourself. And so there are certain commands that God gives us. Here's the wonderful thing. By just submitting to it, we relieve ourselves from a great deal of suffering. Would you guys admit that? When he says, look, don't commit adultery, what is he saying? Hey, here's a way for you not to find yourself in a whole world of hurt and pain and suffering. Just don't do it. But as true as that is, did you guys know that it's equally as true to say that when oftentimes God tells us to be obedient, that we suffer pain and we go enter into suffering that we normally would not enter into had we not been obedient to God? That obedient to God actually brings pain? Actually brings temporal suffering upon us? And that's true, and I believe it's true, and I believe you know it's true. And in, in, in this threat, this, this, this truth of suffering for righteousness' sake really is keeping some of you and is acting as a deterrent to do what is right right now, even in your own life. Because you know if you follow God and you're obedient and you lay that thing down or you do what God calls you to do, you know it's going to be suffering, So what we have is we have a lot of God's people in the house of God this morning that sit there and say, I'll be obedient, but only as it is advantageous for me to do so. In other words, I will do what God tells me to do if temporally it really helps me out. But if I have to be obedient and it's going to cause me temporally to be experience pain and suffering, then that's where I draw the line. I'm just not going to do it. And unfortunately, that's where people find themselves all the time. Let me try to give you just a simple illustration of this. I could use so many different illustrations throughout the Word of God. Let me just pick one that you might not be is aware of. I stop and I think about just one of the commands that God has given us. One of the commands He gives us is to look after orphans. Did you know that's a command of God for you? Did you know that is a command of God for your life? 
And this is one of the things that we try to teach our kids more than anything else. Being a Christian and a disciple of Jesus Christ is not so much about not what you don't do. It's about what you do. There's a lot more what God calls us to do than what he tells us to refrain from. And so what we tell our kids is that all of the commands of God are equally important to God. And that what we have to do, if it's in the word, we have to find a way and we have to construct our lives in a way that we will do what God calls us to do. And one of the ways is to be able to look after orphans. It's very clear in the word of God. It's not given once, it's given many times. And so now I'm not suggesting that every single one of us have to enter into adoption or every single one of us have to uh, uh, bring on, uh, you know, um, uh, go into foster care. But I would say this, you should at least pray about that possibility. We should at least be financially being able to help in that particular way, right? I mean, is that right or wrong according to the word of God? Do we just sit there and say, well, it's just one that I just choose not to accept, now, why wouldn't you accept it? Well, let me, let me explain out of the words of those who I've talked to before. We've sat back and we've challenged, and they, they sat there and said, man, you know, uh, that's great that you're doing it, but I could never do that. I could never do that. And I said, why? And he goes, man, my whole world would be turned upside down. I couldn't really do all the fun things that I do if that kind of thing happened. And I'm just like, yes, yes, that's, that's one response to folks. Here's the other response to folks. Well, brother, and here's the spiritualized version. You ready? Brother, I just couldn't do it. Why? Because I love too deeply. I love too deeply. I could never do it. I could never take one of those children into my own home because once they came in, I would love them so truly and so purely that if they were ripped out of my home, that, that I could never do that. It would, just, it would just break my heart. And it sounds so spiritual, but oh, how rebellious it is. Because what I sit there and say is what they believe is that they believe that because their obedience of God will lead to pain and some type of suffering, personal suffering, they believe that that validates or vindicates their sinful action and their refusal to do what God has ultimately called them to be able to do. And so I sit there and I challenge them. I'll sit there and say, so the well-being of this child who has been put out of no fault of his own but has no home to be able to go to so you're vindicated to not do what God has called you to do to give you a safe, loving Christian home to provide for this particular child simply because your heart's going to hurt? Do you not know that when God calls us to obedience, He calls us to pain and suffering? That we are, Colossians 2, filling up with the afflictions which we're lacking in Jesus Christ? that we of the body of Jesus Christ, he says, do this. And do you understand that the majority of what God calls you to, there's going to be a length of suffering for him to give you, for you to be radical givers for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's going to be pain and suffering for you to be a dynamic witness in your workplace and in your home for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's going to be pain and suffering for some of you to exalt the marriage, the God-given marriage communion to this unbreakable picture of the unbreakable covenant of God between his people, guess what? There's going to be for you to call to be suffer and some pain that you're going to have to endure in the midst of that as God calls you to obedience. Do you understand that? But here's the key of this text, I think. We need to follow in the practice and we need to follow in the endurance of the servant that we do not allow we do not allow that difficulty to be able to persuade us or to move us in a different place. And we see that Jesus Christ was fully obedient to that. 
He did and lived out the, for, the full truth. In Philippians 2, 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, even the excruciating death where the wrath of God was being poured out on him. He did not let that difficulty deter him to be obedient. He endured. He endured. And that's what God is calling you and I to do today. Now, there's a third thing, and that is this. Not only do we see the servant's practice, not only do we see the servant's endurance, but we also see the servant's confidence. Because here, let's be honest. If we're going to choose suffering, righteousness, okay, suffering for the sake of righteousness, sit there and say, we're going to go, we're going to make a decision that's going to make our life more difficult, that's going to make our life more painful and bring more suffering. If our fleshly, if we're going to get these fleshly bodies to do that, you better have a powerful motivation behind it. Yes, because I don't know about you. I don't like pain. You with me? I don't like discomfort. I don't like things to impede my happiness in my home, right? Y'all, yes. Am I the only one? I love comfort. And anything that's going to come in that way, I'm going to have a powerful motivation that's going to lead me, that's going to be able to overcome that desire for comfort and safety and security. And what is it? Well, we see what it was for this particular servant. It was confidence specifically in God. His confidence in God is what made him, motivated him, and empowered him to be able to do what? To be able to face the most horrific, difficult, painful sufferings for the sake of righteousness. And because he had power, he had faith in God, he was able to demonstrate Excuse me, he was able to demonstrate that confidence in two ways. Because his confidence was with God, first of all, he could be confident that he would not be left alone. Look at verse 7. He says, but the Lord God, what church, helps me. But the Lord God helps me. Verse 8, he says, and who vindicates me is, he who vindicates me is what? Is near. Then he says again in verse, the beginning of verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. That phrase demonstrates that there's this very close-knit, intimate relationship of trust between the servant and between his master, between the son and between the father. And what the son understands, don't miss this, church. Here's the motivation. Get ready. You've got to know this to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. He knows that his father, that his master is sovereign over all. That God never loses control, no matter how out of how chaotic this world says. God never loses control of this world, and He never loses control of His people. And He knows that because God is sovereign over all, that God is sovereign and in control of the plans for His very life. And if God's sovereign plan lead Him to a place that His obedience is going to lead Him to suffering, He knows without a shadow of a doubt that he will not be alone in the midst of that suffering, that his God will be there with him. Do you know how important that is? It is so unbelievably important for you to be able to grip that and grasp that truth. Here's why. Because when you choose to do what is right, you will be amazed at all the people that will try to talk you out of it. The world will talk you out of it. The world will sit there and go, dude, what are you doing, man? Just, just, just sin and just whatever you do, just sin and then just tell God that you're sorry. Just go on. It's not worth the suffering. But you know what's even more frightening? You hear more of that kind of talk from those who, who call themselves God's people. 
There are some of you, have you ever gotten to the point where you knew that to do the right thing would bring suffering? Maybe it was to hang in there in a marriage. Maybe it was not to take a particular job and go and do, do a certain thing. And your whole family, your Christian family around you sat there and said, you're making the wrong decision. Don't do this. You shouldn't live this way. God wants you to be happy. If it was suffering, God wouldn't want you to suffer this way. And you know what you had to do? At that moment, you were completely and totally all alone. So you thought. But who was with you? God was with you. You know, it's interesting to me that when Jesus ascends up into heaven, the very last thing that he says to his people is he gives the great commission. He tells his disciple to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he ends with this, and I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Why did he say that? Because he knew the majority of his disciples would suffer greatly for his namesake. Suffer greatly for his namesake. So as he tells them to go and as he tells them to be obedient and when they're obedient and they begin to suffer, the last thing they remember is, God, I was obedient. But I know you're with me to the ever ends of the earth. He's with me. So his confidence in God brings him a confidence that he will not be alone. And here's the final thing. It also brings a confidence that he would not be disappointed. Now notice what the scriptures say. He says, therefore, I have not been disgraced. And then we look in verse 8 again, and he says, and who vindicates me is, is near. He says, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, and who will declare me guilty? Behold, all them will, will wear out like a garment, and the moth, uh, excuse, excuse me, the moth will eat them up. What he's saying is this. In the midst of your obedience and suffering, in the moment, it doesn't seem like it's the right thing to do. It doesn't seem like it's worth it. God, I was obedient to you, but in the midst of that, all I'm doing is suffering from it. But what Jesus Christ in his saying here is he says, you will ultimately not be disappointed. Jesus Christ was not disappointed. He went through the pain, he went through the hurt, but what did, Jesus, what did God do? The Bible said in verse eight that he vindicated him. What did he do with Jesus Christ? The Bible says that he vindicated him by rewarding him, by giving him, a, he raised him up from the grave and he seated him at the right hand of the Father and he gave him a name above every name that every knee should bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's a, there's a similar promise to you and I for those who endure and go through suffering and difficulty for the sake of obedience and righteousness sake. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. In other words, you will alleviate a lot of problems, a lot of suffering if you do what is right. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And he says, have no fear for them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ and the Lord as holy. He says, in other words, just do it all the more. Set your mind on doing what is right all the more, even if it's going to suffer in the temporal, because one day you will not be disappointed. Do you know that every single one of you right now that chooses to suffer for righteousness' sake, when you stand before God and you see in heaven and all is seen clearly, that there will not be one of us, not me, not you, that will sit there and say, I wish I had done it different. All of us would sit there and say, every bit of that suffering was worth it now. Every bit of that suffering was worth it now. Now that I'm with Jesus. Now the question is, is this, 
What did that suffering ultimately fulfill? His willingness to go and to suffer, his practice, his, his endurance and his confidence in God. What was all this suffering ultimately culminating in? Just two things very quickly. First of all, it culminated in our justification. The fact that Jesus was willing and did and came and did not sin, was born of a virgin, which means he was not born in sin. He was, he was tempted in every way, yet he sinned not. And he went to the cross and he died on the cross. It made possible for you and I, for our sins to be forgiven. If Jesus did not endure in the midst of all that suffering, if he would have backed out in the midst of that suffering and he still would have died on that cross, you and I would die in our sins. Because when he died on that cross, he would have died for his sin. He would be incapable of dying for anybody else's. He'd be incapable of being somebody else's substitute. But because he endured to the end, God's will was done so that you and I could be saved. So you and I who were sinners, our sins could be placed on him and we could be forgiven before God. The second thing that it will do is, is it, it, it results in is our sanctification. Here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, rose from the grave. He not only gave us eternal life, he gave us a new life in Jesus Christ. Now the spirit of God that dwelled with him now dwells with us and empowers us to be able to do what is right and to be obedient to the things that God is calling you to do and calling me to do, even though you and I know it will cause us to do suffering. It will cause us to suffer. So here's a question this morning because I know this is how the Holy Spirit works. As we walk through this text and we're exalting Christ and we're seeing the picture of Christ, I believe in your heart of hearts, you're sitting there and God begin to illuminate, the Holy Spirit begin to illuminate, hey man, this is where you are not obedient. And the truth is this morning is you would sit there and say and be honest and sit there and say, I'm not obedient in this area because I'm afraid it's gonna bring me pain. And I'm gonna tell you, do not deter it will all be worth it in the end and you will not be disappointed in Christ. So this morning is twofold. Number one, it's for those who need to come and to be justified, need to be saved, need to be born again, to come and say, I need to be saved. I need my sins to be forgiven. How do I do it? I'll lead you in that prayer. For the rest of us, it's the process of sanctification to come and to remind ourselves that God has called us to be like his son, Christ. And the question is, are you right now being obedient in those areas that God has illuminated this morning? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that folks will come, that they will deal with you, that they, God, more important than even coming, even where they are, God, do not let them be the type that just simply listen, but God, they're the ones that hear the word of God that internalize it and act in obedience. Let them do that today.